it is okay to hold this paradox alive in your head, which is, I'm awesome. I have great talents. There's a lot of amazing things that I bring to the table. But there's stuff that I'm still afraid of. There's stuff that I'm not sure about. There, there are places where I'm just not that confident. That's okay. <laughs> Nothing is wrong with that. And I think that's kind of what your podcast ultimately is about. How do we make sure that what's amplified is what's great about us while acknowledging and taking steps to address the things that we worry about, that we fear, or where we feel we lack confidence and competence? Welcome to The Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that empowers professional women to rise. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik, and in this show, I take you undercover into the stories and lessons that I learned, sometimes the hard way, throughout my career. I also talk with working women, leaders, and coaches to show you that no matter what your struggle is and no matter what your career goals are, you already have all the talent that you need to succeed. Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm really excited for you to hear today's conversation. Today's guest is someone who I have known for quite a while, and she is someone who has really supported me and helped me out at some key points in my career, and I was so excited to bring her on the show to share her wisdom and her insights with you. In this conversation, we cover a lot of things, but I think of particular interest and helpfulness to you might be, one is you're going to hear a lot of conversation around networking and building connections and doing so authentically and in a way that feels good and in a way that's productive for your career. And this is a really important topic. And I know it's one that can be difficult if you're someone who's still kind of trying to find yourself in the workplace and still trying to figure out how you bring your natural self. I think you layer on top of that the pressure to build connections and have a network and have these relationships. And it can feel like a lot. But luckily, there is a way to do it that feels good and that feels natural. And we talk about that quite a bit. And we also talk about a topic that is really, really important. And that is the topic of people who are so smart, so capable, have so much intellectual horsepower, so much to bring to the table, can ace a test, can do an assignment perfectly, can really, really perform at a top level, but who might find themselves struggling to bring out all of that talent and all of that wonderful drive and ambition in a professional setting. When we try to take all of the things that we're able to do and then kind of plop them from the academic world into the professional world, all of a sudden, we're dealing with things like communicating with people and presenting ourselves and having confidence and speaking up and doing things that can be really, really challenging if our confidence isn't exactly where we would like it to be. And that's a place that I've been. And that's a huge theme in this show. And it is something that I know is very relevant to anyone who's listening. So with that, I want to jump right into today's conversation. So you can meet today's guest, learn a little bit about her, a little bit about what she does, and hear some of her wisdom and stories and advice. Without further ado, let's meet her and enjoy. So my name is Petal Modest. I am a lawyer by training, and uh, I currently hold a position at Columbia Law School in New York as Associate Dean of Student Affairs Administration, which basically means that I oversee the offices that students come to every single day. So it could be anything from career services to registration services, if they want to apply for a clerkship. So all of those offices I oversee. And it's a pretty exciting job. I uh, My journey to this role is a little bit peculiar. I started off as a corporate lawyer in New York City. I was a finance lawyer. And at some point, I fell out of love with practicing law, but I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know, I didn't even have the time to, to think through what I should do next. And as is the case with a lot of my life, and we'll talk more about that later, I am sure, I simply took advantage of an opportunity that basically came into the law firm, a, a search firm called someone at my law firm 
saying that they were looking for an associate, so a lawyer, to head up global recruiting at a large law firm. And the person who got the call came to me and said, I know you're falling out of love with practice and law. How would you like to to do this kind of work? And I was completely flabbergasted. I thought you had to go to school to learn how to recruit people. I, I had no idea about it. But I decided to follow up on it. And I was given this job to stop practicing, go to another firm, head up global recruiting. The firm was quite large, still is. I think there were 20 offices worldwide at the time. So it was a whole new role for me. It was a completely different way to be in the world, but I loved it. It really gave me a chance to communicate with people, to get inside their heads, to work with other people collaboratively in a way that I actually didn't do very much of in practice. And so I did that for several years and then I got married, I had a daughter and it became difficult for me to envision having the same kind of schedule and having a young baby. And so I ultimately decided to resign and take a couple of years off and figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up basically once those Mm. two years passed. But about six months into that that quote unquote self-imposed two-year break, I got another call from an old mentor of mine who actually was the head of the firm where I practiced. And he basically said to me that Columbia Law School was looking for a dean of career services and that he had given my name to the school as someone that they should reach out to. And I said, well, I'm taking two years off. What are you talking about? I'm a stay-at-home mom. Anyway, long story short, I ended up having all these conversations with people at Columbia. My father passed away that same year. I actually fell into a very, very deep depression because of his death and had said to the people at Columbia that um, they should stop considering me for this role. It turned out, though, that they waited a little bit for me to get back from the funeral and all of that and um, ultimately give me an offer. And I say to everyone that I am very loyal to Columbia because in a very real way, taking that role changed my life, saved my life because I was so down about my dad's death. And again, something else we could touch on later, I think the way that I would characterize how I got to where I am is that I am open. I say yes a lot. And I really, really, really place a huge value on relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think those three things define how I am, where I am, and how I hope to continue to be in the world. I think relationships are one. I know for me, it took me a while to figure out how important that is and to really understand what those do for you. And I know a lot of women who listen to this show are are like I was. It's like we want to do such good work and we think so much about our work and not always about relationships. I agree. I, I think that, first of all, you, you have to be genuine, obviously. You don't just try to form relationships for the sake of forming relationships. Actually, it won't work because people will not feel that you are genuinely involved in engaging with them. But there, I have so many stories in my life about the value of both forming and nurturing relationships. I think that's the other piece about being a professional woman that we sometimes miss. It's one thing to connect with someone, to have a good chat with them. Maybe you met them at a networking event or in the course of your work. But how do you nurture those relationships? How do you really keep up with people who you really genuinely have connected, uh, have connected with and want to keep in your life, but you're busy and you have children and the children have like a whole other life that you are sort of in charge of and you might have spouses and, and your work itself might be super demanding. Um, it is a constant quandary and we could, we could talk more, but, but the relationships, I think, tend to define what happens with all of us in, in our lives, both personally and professionally. I don't know if this is something that you've seen, but it took me a really long time to realize that part of my, not challenge, but I think hesitance to form relationships was, it was so hard for me to show my real self. Like that felt so scary. It felt like not an option. It felt like there was like Jessica and then work Jessica. And I think like the strongest professional relationships I've had are where people really know me, me as a human. And that felt so scary to do at first. And it felt like I can only show them like my little worst, my little work mask self. 
Mm-hmm. I think that the irony of that, and I would say to you that I feel every single one of us feels like that, if not all the time, a lot of the time. And the irony of it is that, is that all of us are feeling exactly that. And so when we are brave enough and have the courage, sometimes just a little bit of courage to drop the mask, what immediately happens is just like what happens to a stranger with, between you and a stranger on the street. If you smile, they tend to smile back. Mm-hmm. And so you drop that mask and they drop theirs. They're so relieved <laughs> that someone else feels exactly like them and is just willing to step out a little bit. And I find that that's very comforting, that irony, that we all actually feel like that. We're not sure how we're going to be received. We're not sure if if people will like us for who we are. But if your neighbor is feeling the exact same way and you try to, you know, drop your mask, they will too. Yeah. And it's scary to do it first, but then you start, you know, feeling comfortable doing it and then really trusting that who you are is okay. And you don't have to open up to everyone, right? You find your people. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the reason we're all so unique is because, first of all, we have we have a very special contribution, I think, to to make to the world a, a very special impact only we could have. But we also have our people out there, people who the the we that we are will specially resonate with. And you kind of know when you find those people. It's a very instinctive thing. And so I, I think that really the challenge is to take advantage of, of finding them and make sure that they stay in your life and make sure that you nurture those relationships so that you can grow together and do great things together. Absolutely. We went on a wonderful tangent that I wasn't expecting, but I'm happy we did. And I wanted to now ask you this question that I've been asking guests lately, which is about a theme that's central to the show, which is personal and professional development. And I've been really loving asking my guests where they're at now. Like, what is that professional thing where they're trying to grow or shift or evolve currently in their careers? So I, it's a very good question. I would say that what I am trying to do now is to take off in a direction that is both professionally fulfilling, but also personally meaningful. So I graduated from law school quite a while ago. I'm not going to tell you when. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I have been working in the professional uh, legal world, at least for a long time. And I actually taught high school before I went to law school. So I've been sort of out in the, the adult professional world for a while. But you know, my life and my my goals and dreams have also been shaped um, by being a mother. I have two daughters in two different generations, literally. One is 12 and one is two. And I think although I really value and always want to grow professionally, for instance, five years ago, I did an MBA while I was working full time and had a, I had my first daughter. I also am very interested in making sure that the future my daughters inherit, that the world that they grew up into is a better world in many, many significant ways. And so my latest venture into sort of accomplishing that goal and also growing as a professional is the start of a podcast that I want to launch this spring, and it's called Parenting for the Future. And the premise of Parenting for the Future is that we are in a time of really seismic shifts in demographics, in technology. Uh, in the way that we treat each other, in our political systems, our views of the world. And because we're in such a pivotal time, the question is, the children that we have, what are we doing for them? What are we doing with them that will ensure that they could thrive in that future? So the the podcast is a is a, an effort to answer those questions. It's an effort to engage with parents and people with children in their lives on how all these changes are going to affect our children and how we should respond to them. But in a very real sense, for me, it is also my way of raising an issue that is both personal to me and one that I think has the potential to really impact what we do going forward as parents and as people with children in our lives. So it is both professional and personal. And it's certainly, I think, a purpose that has sort of evolved in terms of my own purpose over time. I'm very excited to listen to your show. And I'll also share it with listeners in the show notes because I have a feeling they'll be wanting to hear more from you by the time they're done listening to this interview. 
And now going from where you are presently, I want to go all the way back. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about your early career and a little bit about my early career and about early careers in general. And so I asked what you were working on presently. What was difficult for you or where were you really trying to grow or evolve when you were first starting out? Because a a lot of women listening are, are in that early phase of where you're just figuring everything out. So when I was just starting out, obviously, I really wanted to be a great lawyer, but I was very aware of what I would call perceived obstacles or challenges. And so I was not born in the United States. I had uh, immigrated here uh, primarily to study. Um, I am a woman of color. And I was going into a profession that was very white, very male, and I wondered and worried about my ability to thrive in that profession, not because of what I was capable of doing or my intelligence, my education, my training. None of that worried me. I really worried about the fact that I could have everything going for me, but the people who sort of were responsible for my growth and my development and my promotion in that profession, none of them looked like me. And the fact that the profession looked the way it did was a signal to me that maybe they didn't appreciate or, or, or embrace, for want of a better word, people who looked like me. And so in my early days of being a lawyer, I really worried about my ability to, to thrive in that profession and to really grow. And I would say that I had a lot of, there were a lot of instances where it was very clear to me that some people were not comfortable with having a, a, a woman of color in a room taking charge in some instances or even being in the room, you know, or I also found the opposite where where people just treated you like a person, which ultimately is what we want the world to be like, where people, you know, are, are looked at and treated and uh, respected based on what they bring to the table rather than what they look like. But that was certainly a big challenge for me in my 20s and thinking about how how would I navigate this legal career, that this this legal field that looks so you know the the whole power structure looks so different from me? Would I ever be able to to get there? Even though that was my ambition at the time. And is there anything that you learned along the way that you think might be helpful or inspirational to someone who relates to your story and what you're what you're speaking about? So I think. It was about staying open and being willing to drop my own mask, being willing to have candid conversations and to try to build relationships with people, not based on whatever my role was or my title was, but based on the fact that we were human beings involved in a common endeavor. And by that, I mean, we could all spend a lot of time focusing on what's different about us versus other people who we're working with, whether it's age or race or gender or even interest. And the time that we take spending, you know, the time that we spend thinking about those things, if we spent it trying to get to know those people, trying to make sure that whatever you did have in common was a a jumping off point to form a better and stronger relationship, I think we would all be better off and we would sort of get over these anxieties a lot quicker. And believe me when I say, there were a lot of nights and days and months where I'd be wallowing in things like, oh, will I, do I want to stay in this profession? What, what sense does it make? Uh, you know, I've been there. I've been there turning things over and over in my head. But I've also done the opposite, which is where I said, you know what? To hell with this. I want to do well in this role. If these are the only people that are actually doing well, they don't have to look like me or share my gender or background or what have you okay, who cares? They're human beings. And I'm going to take a little step towards them. And little by little, I I found that they would step towards me as well. And so some of my very, very closest friends and mentors are all these people who had nothing, you know, really in common with me, except that we're all human. (laughs) And um, they're still in my life today. I, I, the first firm that I worked, I I worked at, I I met my husband there, all of my best friends are, are from that firm. It's really incredible. And so I would say for anyone who really identifies with where I was in, in my 20s, take a chance, take a chance, drop the mask, take a step towards the very thing that is intimidating or fearful because you might be surprised that someone takes a step back towards you. Absolutely. And I think 
in the ideal utopian world, the person who is trying to figure out where they fit in shouldn't have to take the first step. But I think, I hope, and I want to believe that we are moving towards a place where more and more leaders understand how they can take the first step. Because it, it seems like in your experience, you've seen this too, maybe there's willingness to do it, but maybe not sure how to start. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. One of the things that I have found is to think about what you might have in common. And it could be in common on a professional basis. So maybe you're both working on the same matter. Maybe you have the same client or coverage area in terms of a geography. Maybe it's a certain type of product that you're marketing. Whatever your job is, these quote unquote people who are, you know, not like you or who you think hold the key to your success in your particular organization, they have something in common with you. And you can start there because it's a comfortable place to start. It's a place where you probably feel very competent, very confident. And so even if it's having a conversation over coffee about a way to market a product that sort of Let's brainstorm about this because I feel like everything we've come up with so far is just not cutting it. I don't, it's not resonating with me. What do you think? Uh, People love to talk about themselves. So even if you said to a colleague, oh, do you want to have lunch? Because I have this thing that I'm grappling with. And just based on the stuff you've worked on, I think you could, you know, I I think I would really be grateful to have some advice from you because I feel like you have done this and you've been here before. It is not sort of empty flattery. And I don't want it to be confused with that, but it is thinking about the fact that everyone wants to feel needed. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to feel that their contribution is valued. And if you have something in common with this person or these people, leveraging it to say, well, let's, let's actually have a conversation that may be outside of what we do every day, but related to it uh, and something that we both understand. And then I think very naturally, very often, a whole relationship will start to grow. That, that then becomes about both your professional growth and development and, and, and commonalities, but can really turn into, this is somebody that I think is an ally. This is somebody I can rely on in my, in my workplace. And then from there, it continues to grow. So find something that you have in common and, and start there because that's a little easier than sort of like, because going to work can sometimes be like walking into a party where you don't know anyone. And you're like, oh, dear, I thought my friends were going to show up. They're, they're not here. I'm all by myself. How am I going to talk to anybody? I'm, I'm standing in the corner looking like a loser. I mean, literally, sometimes you show up at work and that's how you feel. But if you have something in common that you can say, oh, hey, you know, we're working on this project together. Let's talk about like how we could make it bigger or take it to another market or what have you. Then at least it's a, I think it's a safer and more comfortable place to start. That's so helpful. And I want to get some of your wisdom and some of the stuff you've learned being the dean at Columbia and seeing so many super ambitious students and so many super ambitious women launch their careers. And I know that a lot of women out there, when they're going through something difficult at work, they feel very alone. They feel like, well, I'm the only one who's not feeling confident and I'm the only one who's struggling here. And I would just love to get your perspective on what you've seen and how (laughs) this struggle to figure things out professionally might be more universal than sometimes we think it is. It is so universal. And it's not just universal for law students. It's universal across the board. And it's part of our development as human beings. Anything new can be intimidating. So it's universal, this feeling that, am I good enough? Do I have the confidence to really do this? What if they really found out that I don't know what I'm saying? I think just about every law student asks themselves that at some level. In my role as first as Dean of Career Services and now overseeing all the student-facing offices, one of the things I think that law schools and a lot of institutions of higher learning are just getting wind of and just learning to appreciate And that is that no matter what you're studying, you have to start with the person. Who is this person? Where are they in their life? How centered are they in who they are and what they want to be in the world? And I think that we jump very quickly from we go to undergraduate 
institutions. We go to law school. We go work as lawyers. All the way in between, if we are not paying attention to and nurturing the person that we are, if we are not keeping ourselves centered in whatever way that that can happen for each of us as individuals, then all of these intimidating things, experiences that we have, or all of these spaces where we find ourselves that are unfamiliar to us, where we may feel a lack of confidence, all those things sort of become bigger than they need to be. They're amplified. So, so what am I really saying? If your parents spend a lot of time with you, helping you to get to know yourself, respecting the person that you were, even where they disagreed with you, validating your choices, acknowledging your feelings, but also holding you to very high standards and, and rich values, setting you up basically for being able to meet all of the challenges that you will inevitably have in a way that did not freak you out, but really said to you, look, this is just another challenge. I have what it takes to do it, to, to overcome it. I may not know how, but I'll figure it out, but I'll be okay. If you were lucky enough to have that, then you can probably navigate law school and all of those things in a way that is healthy. Okay, all parents, I think, have the best intentions. I am a parent with the best intentions, and I can guarantee you that I am not doing that with my children every day as much as I might try. There are lots of days when, when something happens, and instead of saying, okay, darling, I understand. Let's try it this way. I acknowledge you. We can't have that. Instead, I'm just like yelling or <laughs> I'm like, you do what I do, <laughs> what I say, not what I do, all of those things. And so it's not that easy to sort of get to law school and be this calm and centered person who is supremely confident and is aware of what he or she does not know, mostly she, because I, I, know, we're, I know we are talking us girls here for the most part, but it's really actually difficult to be that person. So what do you do if you were not, you know, centered from the beginning and you come into this very calm and very optimistic about your chances? You think about what you can do in that moment, in that time, in that space to sort of get yourself there. Because one of the things that I've always been fascinated about with students is how did you make it to a school like Columbia Law School? You know, you have what it takes. You're amazing. <laughs> That's how you made it there. You're amazing. And it's not just Columbia Law School. You are getting an education. You are going to have your impact. Wherever you are going to school, whatever profession you're joining, think about how many millions of people are all over the world did not have the opportunity or, or ability to take advantage of the opportunities that you did to be where you are. So you are already amazing. You just need something and someone to remind you of that all the time. And if that for you is meditation, if that for you is, you know, taking long hikes, if that for you is meeting with a group of, of people who are at the very same stage that you are and just talking through your anxieties and your fears, if that is prayer for you, if that is, you know, something that's, that's more spiritual experience, that's the stuff that you actually need to do to ground you and to center you so that no matter how intimidating the experiences or the space that you're about to enter, you can enter knowing you will be okay. You've got what it takes. So it's, I don't think it's ever too late to do that, but different things resonate with different people. And sometimes the real challenge is finding what works for you. That, that was so interesting. And this isn't something that I've had a chance to talk about on the show, but it I'm so fascinated how you brought up this idea of parenting and how that shapes our identity and then how that impacts how we are in the world. And I do think that a really big piece of building confidence and feeling okay in these situations and dealing with some of the fears and anxieties and insecurities is learning to parent ourselves and parent our inner child and learning how to stop and say like, okay, what is the little kid in me feeling like right now? And what can adult like loving me tell that little kid to make them feel okay? And I know for me, like in some of my really dark moments, that's been one of the only things that has felt good. That makes complete sense to me. And what a wonderful way to put it, that we can parent the little child in us. I, I think that's that's a great, great way to explain what 
building confidence in yourself, uh, reminding yourself of your value, acknowledging that you have fears, that you have things that you, you worry about, and just saying, that's okay. You are fine to feel that. You're a human being. We all feel it. But you also have so much more or you are so much more than that. That is exactly what a, a good parent would say to their child. So if we can learn to parent ourselves uh, as adults, I think we are halfway there or more than halfway there to overcoming some of these some of these fears and and, um, and insecurities. Absolutely. And then I, I think the other thing that I really hope for people listening to take away is that when you're struggling or something is not going well or you feel like you're not good enough at something or whatever it might be, to be able to hold in your mind that that can be true and also you can have enormous talents and potential. Like there is duality and I think it's so easy to fear that the thing that's hard is the controlling factor and the factor that's going to determine our future and our life. Absolutely. Why do you think I went to law school? Because I feared math from the very beginning. I don't know why. Maybe I had a really bad teacher in high school or something. But it's really, really true. And so when I decided to do an MBA, I was already, you know, a lawyer for many years. I had a full-time job. I, I, I was already at Columbia. I had, you know, my daughter, my husband, all of these other things going on. But I had always in the back of my mind worried that I would, you know, die never understanding math properly <laughs> or never facing my fear of it, for want of a better word, or business or anything like that, which is kind of ironic since I was a finance lawyer, but it's a, it's a slightly different thing to immerse yourself in numbers versus words, because you could use words as a lawyer to explain everything, but to use numbers was a new skill for me. So knowing that I had accomplished a lot and that I had a lot to give, and then putting myself in that space where I felt completely, completely incompetent, zero confidence was a huge step for me. But at some point, I was okay with that. I was like, you know what? Who cares if this whole thing falls apart and it doesn't work? It doesn't matter. What really matters is that I decided to face it head on and do something and, and do something about it. And I have to tell you, doing an MBA at that time in my life was one of the best experiences of my life. It was extremely difficult. It was to balance everything, to learn new subject matter, to face the numbers. <laughs> yeah, It was really, really tough, but it was in the end so rewarding. And so I think that it is okay to hold this paradox alive in your, in your head, which is, I'm awesome. I have great talents. There's a lot of amazing things that I bring to the table. But there's stuff that I'm still afraid of. There's stuff that I'm not sure about. There, there are places where I'm just not that confident. That's okay. <laughs> Nothing is wrong with that. The question for you is, what do you need to do to make sure that the, the, the places where you don't feel confident or, or the, the areas in which you feel fearful or you're not sure, you, you, have, to, you have to do something to ensure that that doesn't take over all the other things that you are. And I think that's kind of what your podcast ultimately is about. How do we make sure that what's amplified is what's great about us while acknowledging and taking steps to address the things that we worry about, that we fear, or where we feel we lack confidence and competence? Oh, absolutely. And then as I've moved forward in my own career, it's also become even more interesting, more complex, which is then, okay, where are the areas that I know I want to get good at? And then as we become leaders, then how do I also accept where I'm never going to be the best and understand that a lot of leaders' strengths is in knowing where they're going to bring in people to fill their gaps? And I see so many successful people not getting so hung up. I mean, of course, if you want to improve at something, I think there's enormous growth there. And also there's something to be said too about understanding that all of these people who are so successful, I think a lot of them understand where they need that supplemental help. And instead of feeling down about themselves that they're not good at everything, they get what they need so they can deliver what they want to deliver. You are absolutely right. 
I mean, that was a very early lesson for me when I switched from practicing law to administering recruiting in this other law firm. As a lawyer, you take a lot of very personal responsibility for whatever your role might be in a transaction or a deal or a case. It's it's very personal. You are the one you're doing, you know, you're you're checking everything that you've written 50,000 times, you're double checking the law, you are constantly questioning whether you've gotten it right, whether it's practically perfect. And for some of what lawyers do, you know, perfection is not such an uh, unusual thing to strive for because you you don't want to lose. The stakes are very high. Someone's life might be in the balance. And so going from practicing law as a young associate to managing people in a very different sort of uh, role really taught me the importance of a couple of things. One was recognizing what other people's strengths were and leveraging those to make up for your own weaknesses. Not a single one of us is perfect and knows everything. And guess what? That's great. Because if any of us were perfect, we would have no need for anyone else. So it's really important to to look around and to realize that you don't have to know everything and you definitely don't have to do everything perfectly and that there are other people who actually are uniquely skilled at some of the things that you are really bad at. And so that's fine. And so you leverage that. So delegation was one thing. The other thing was forgiveness, learning to forgive myself. I will mess up. We all will mess up. For God's sake, we're human beings. And so if you know you forgot something or you said the wrong thing, thing to the wrong person or you sent the wrong thing, it is not the end of the world. Well, hopefully it's not the end of anyone's world. You forgive yourself, but you also acknowledge your mistake. It's really important because if you think that you're perfect, then you can never apologize. You can never actually come down out of, uh, you know, out of wherever it is you, <laughs> the pedestal you put yourself on to say to someone, I made an error. I'm sorry. I'm going to do what I can to fix it. So delegation, recognizing you would make mistakes and apologizing for them if they impacted someone negatively are huge. And then the other thing is just acceptance, accepting that you bring a lot to the table. You have some very unique talents that really you can you, you there's a contribution only you could make. And accepting that that this is where you needed to focus your time and your energies is also huge because you could waste a lot of time trying to do tasks or trying to tackle things that you are just not cut out to do. I still have no interest in being a CFO. I don't care. I still hate those numbers. But <laughs> But if I could work with people who love the numbers, and so even though I have to manage a budget and they can do that for me or with me, done, right? I look good. They get to play to their strengths and I get to free up my time to, to do the things that I am really great at. It's a win-win because the CFOs like doing the CFO thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I deeply relate on the lawyer fear of numbers. Before I go into the listener question, there is one last thing I wanted to ask you which is just about if there's anything that you've seen that you can share in terms of seeing students evolve, maybe if they're struggling earlier in their career, seeing what they grow into and what they blossom into. I would just love to hear a little bit about what you've observed and the growth that you've seen. One of the things that I've seen uh, quite a bit of, and it was particularly when I was in the career space, was this phenomena where students who are academically extremely strong, which which most of our students obviously are at Columbia, all of them are actually, struggle a lot to wow employers. They can't land a role. They struggle in interviews. They can't seem to connect with lawyers who will hire them. And it's, it's really difficult for them because all their lives, they've been successful by the measures that matter. They got A's. In everything, all the time, since you're like in preschool, if they give A's in preschool, which I don't know if they do, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but they've always been rewarded for, for top-notch academic performance. And suddenly, they're in professional school. And professional school should lead to a job in that profession. And so a big part of getting ready for the profession is interviewing, as you know, for internships for the summer that hopefully will lead to full-time employment. And it is incredible how many students 
who are A students in school struggle to be A students in the recruiting process. And where I have seen people grow is where they've accepted that here is something that actually I'm not that good at. And you know the reason I'm not that good at it? Because I've been in school all my life. I've never worked probably, or I've maybe just had some, you know, little internship in college or something. I've never interviewed for a job formally. I have never tried to convince seven or eight top lawyers that I, I would be a great colleague. I've never done that. And maybe I look around at some of my colleagues in law school and they seem to be acing it. Good for them. Maybe their parents are lawyers. Maybe somebody has practiced with them. Maybe they actually took five years off between college and law school and worked in the real world. So I just have to accept that I have never really done this. So I don't know what I'm doing. And so I am going to take all the help that I can get. I'm going to leverage all the resources here at the law school, the resources in the alumni base, whatever I can find to help me, I'm going to do it. And, and one of the reasons that this is so important to point out, this, these particular experiences, is if we are ever in a situation where we lack confidence, where we lack competence, the best thing that we can do for ourselves is look around and say, okay, who has already conquered the stuff that I am struggling with right now? What resources are at my disposal? What can I leverage to help me get to the next stage? And so the students who have always overcome this particular challenge are those who acknowledge to themselves, okay, this is where I am. I suck at this. So who is around that can help me? What can I bring to bear to help me? How open am I to getting that help? And um, Jessica, one of the things that I remember about you very fondly, well, there are two things. One is you never lost sight of what you wanted to do, of what your dream was, of what your at that moment of what you wanted to do with your law degree. And you recognize the need to get help from others, to, to leverage resources, to keep pushing, and not to just, you know, even in, in a moment where you were like, I'm not sure this is working or what have you, not to just accept it and stay there. And that's what I'm talking about. So where I have seen law students really overcome challenges is where they've been willing to first accept that this is just their reality at the moment, but then to say, okay, what can I do about it? The students who have never really moved forward would graduate law school, probably would find a, a role, but certainly not what they wanted, are those who really did not recognize that they could be helped and that there were other things that they could take advantage of. And I feel like that's a very important lesson for life. You can't always do it. You can't always know it. Uh, but when you don't know, someone else does. Find them, find the resources, leverage it to your advantage and move to the next level. Well, you were my resource when I was just really struggling on like getting from student mode into professional mode. Well, you did well, my dear. I don't, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think we are fine. I think you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Like I look back and now that I'm in my 30s, I'm like, man, I was so young. And right? I almost am just like, ah, I wish I wasn't so hard on myself. Right. And that's the other thing, Jessica. And that's sort of the acceptance and then quickly leveraging the resources, quote unquote, moving on. Because we do have a tendency to be hard on ourselves, women in particular. And again, if you've always gotten A's, why don't I know this? Why couldn't I do this? It's a different thing. You don't, you don't have to know it. When you, when you learn it, you'll get an A. <laughs> but mm -hmm. before then, it's difficult. And I do think that one of the, the biggest struggles that we have uh, as women professionals, and sometimes even in our personal lives, is this tendency to be so tough on ourselves, to not parent ourselves, like you referred to earlier. We don't parent ourselves. We instead act like, you know, we have some sort of authoritarian person over us. And why didn't you get it? Why didn't you do it? What's wrong with you? And that is actually the opposite of how we should treat ourselves. Mm, I agree. And it's hard, but you can shift it slowly. It's something that I still struggle with, which is like to stop being so hard on myself. Me too. Me too. And I think, I think that is normal. But again, 
what I do notice, like everything else, the more you practice, the easier it gets over time. But it is still a struggle. And I think women will probably struggle, struggle with this for a long, long time. But acknowledging that it's a struggle, acknowledging that, okay, here I am in this place where I am beating myself up. I don't need to keep doing that. I think over time, it gets easier and easier. But certainly, I admit it does not go away completely. And there's always the enormous power in women supporting each other. That's where I think a huge untapped like well of solutions that's just like going to explode when we figure out like Mm. how to systematically lift one another. I couldn't agree more. That's like a whole other conversation. Um, But very related because there is a an instant affinity that we have to each other. We share so many of the I I mean we so many of us kind of lead identical lives. Wherever we come from, wherever in the world we're from, whatever our race, whatever our religion, our culture, our identity, women as a species share so much, so much. And if we could really figure out how to leverage that to help each other and to lift each other up all the time, uh, we would have hit on it. I mean, men will go running scared for sure, but... (laughs) But that's not our problem. And, and a podcast like yours is, is really uh, a great sort of move in that direction, I have to say, which is why I was so happy to, to come on. Well, I am so happy to have you on. And in the spirit of that, before the listener question, I wanted to ask you to share about your podcast. You talked about it a little bit earlier, but maybe you can give a little hint or a taste of like what some of your favorite topics will be and what you're super excited to dig into for anybody who might be curious. So there are a number of things I'm really excited about. One of them is talking about toddlerhood and what is what's really important for us to do with and for our children when they're in those really, really formative years between like two to five, you know, because there's infancy, but between two and five, when they're up on their feet (laughs) and they're really absorbing everything like sponges, they're starting to be verbal, uh, they're starting to pull away from you and exert their own independence. What are some of the foundational things we can do with them at that stage to set them up so that they can go through life with a strong, resilient, ambitious attitude, but also an attitude that says to them, I am worth it. I am valuable. I can overcome things. Even though I feel bad in this moment, it's okay. It will get better tomorrow because I have what it takes to make it better. So that is something that I'm hugely interested in delving in because my my personal belief is if we could set up our children right, quote unquote, from a very early age, we've already solved half of the problems. Because, <laughs> because when you look around us today and you think about the things that that really the problems that really perplex humankind, a lot of it has to do with greed and and you know, inhumanity and, and lack of empathy and this lack of an understanding that we're all human beings together on a journey. We don't protect each other enough. We don't think enough about the environment in which we in which we exist and how important it is to sustain life into the future. So dealing with the toddler years is a huge, it's a huge part of what's exciting for me with respect to the podcast. Another hugely interesting topic is what will changing demographics in the world mean for the world? And so you probably know that currently the majority of children in the United States under the age of five are of mixed race. And by next year, the majority of young people under the age of 18 will be of mixed race. And so we're heading into a time, I think they say by 2044, 45, when there will be no racial majority in the United States. What does that mean? What does that mean for things that we as a country and really the world at large have struggled with for for centuries, really, which is how to treat everyone equally and how to make sure that that people have equal opportunities and how not to take advantage of others and all of those things. So that's another another really interesting piece for me. And then finally, obviously, the impact of technology on our children (laughs) while they're still children and on the world at large. What jobs are going to be replaced? Should we be scared and running because of AI? What, what is it going to mean for us? How are we going to leverage it 
to solve problems as opposed to create problems. So those are some of the really interesting uh, topics that I am looking forward to exploring on the podcast. Uh, I'm so excited to listen to it. And with that, if you're ready for it, I was going to ask you the listener question. Okay. All right, here we go. So the listener says, I find it difficult to adjust to a work environment where I'm working with so many men who are older than me. It's hard to describe. They're not bad people and I'm not an awkward person, but I feel awkward so much of the time around them. It's draining to feel this way at work. Do you have any thoughts or advice on this? Sincerely, not fitting in. Well, not fitting in. I think some of what I mentioned earlier might actually be helpful to you in your current role. So we talked a little bit about thinking about or trying to find out what people cared about, what they loved, um, where their passions might lie. And so even though you're in a workspace where there are a lot of men who are older than you, I would advise you to start reaching out to them in very organic ways in an effort to understand what they care about and to see where you can find connections and commonalities. If you like your job and you you intend to stay there for the long term, then it really is important that you note your relationships with your colleagues. And since your age is different, your gender is different, then you have to start thinking about, well, what do we have in common? And so maybe during the course of working together, you can ask questions that might be related to what you're working on, but that will help you get a window into the lives that these these men are living. Do they have families? Do they have a hobby? Do they travel? Where have they been? Maybe you've been there or you want to go there. Maybe you want to ask them what the experience was like. Try to be intentional about looking for connections and looking for commonalities is one of the best pieces of advice I can give you because I guarantee you that among all of those men are several who you will be surprised to find have a lot in common with you, want to talk about the things they care about, are very happy to share some of that with you. They want to know you too. So as hard as it sometimes is to sort of be the bridge or to be the one to take the first step forward, that would be my best advice to you. Take a step towards one or two or three of these gentlemen and see where it leads. Because I do think that when it really comes down to it, we're all human beings. We all want to be accepted. We all want to feel comfortable in the spaces where we spend a lot of time. If you're feeling awkward at work, they're feeling awkward at work. And they are not sure what to do about it either. And if they're older than you are, they probably have a very different view about how to interact with women that they're working with. I don't know how much older they are, but you know, I'm sure you can appreciate that there might be generational differences uh, in terms of how to interact with, with, with colleagues of a different gender. So you have the youth, you have the knowledge, you probably have great experiences in your life so far. Leverage those to try to find commonalities. Take a step towards a couple of them, see where it leads you. I think you will find First of all, that you have much more in common with them than you think you do. And second of all, and more importantly, I think it will start to change what you feel like in that workspace every day, because I think you will feel like you're becoming more than just professional colleagues. You're really becoming, for want of a better word, friends or or somewhere <laughs> along that continuum, a place where you're, you're very comfortable around them. That was so inspirational. I loved that so much. Thank you. Sure. And now it's time for my favorite part, which is the closing questions that I ask to every guest. And the first of the closing questions is about the title of the show, which is The Art of Speaking Up. And I love to ask every guest what speaking up means for them and why they think it's important. If you don't speak up, you cannot be heard. If you cannot be heard, the world will miss its chance to hear your unique thoughts, to understand your unique perspective to be informed by your unique perceptions and to be changed by your unique contribution. So you have got to speak up. It's really interesting because I have done a lot of personality tests in my life, usually for fun, but I always come out as some kind of crazy extrovert. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, my daughter, my older daughter is 
not very extroverted. You know, she's sort of more introspective and introverted. And sometimes she avoids, you know, certain uh, doing certain things that would sort of put a spotlight on her. And I say to her all the time, it's really important that you be your authentic self. I don't want you to be anybody that you're not. But if you never speak up, no one will ever know what is going on in your head. No one will ever understand what your perspective is, what you have to bring to the table. You have to speak up. And I, and I, and I want to be very clear that speaking, physiologically opening your mouth and getting a sound to come out, I realize that there are some people who cannot speak in that way. But we all have a voice. And whether you are doing it through sign language or pictures or art or other types of expressions, we all owe it to ourselves and to the world to speak up. The reason we're all so unique is because we just have a special thing only we can do and only we can bring to the world. I, I really, really believe that. And so if you never speak, if you never share, then it's gone because no one else can replicate you and no one else can bring what you have to bring. So speaking up is supremely important. It is how we tell everyone who we are and, and it's how we make our contribution. I love that so much. And now it's time for the very last question. And some context is that I started the show because I had some tough times in my early career. Many of them you witnessed <laughs> firsthand. <Aww. laughs> and I created this show to help women who are going through anything difficult or just make them feel inspired so they can go after whatever they want and feel like they can achieve whatever they want professionally and in their lives. And so I love to give this last space to the guest to share what they would want listeners to hear, whatever's on their heart that they would want to share? So I would share that I am uh, a very emotional and empathetic person. If you are going through something difficult and you tell me or I sense it, it is almost as if I am going through it with you. And there are lots of upsides to that because it allows me to, to be a good person in the world, to be a good neighbor, to be a good friend. But the downside to that is that it can sometimes cause me to react to things in ways that are, for want of a better word, too passionate, that are not logical enough, that are not practical enough. And so it's been happening less and less. But, but throughout my 20s and, and some of my 30s, I could react so passionately to something that I end up failing to do what I thought I would do getting myself in trouble. One, one of the things that I have really learned to do is to reread every email I am about to send like 20,000 times <laughs> because I have really had times in my life where somebody does something outrageous or they've been really unkind to another person or they're taking advantage of me or someone that I care about and I would just fire off that email. And my father, who has passed away now, used to say to me, every time you are about to communicate in writing, read it before you distribute it, before you send it. If you're comfortable with seeing those thoughts on the front page of the New York Times, then give it to the person. Send the email, you know, write the letter, what have you. If you're not, you need to rewrite it. And it took me years <laughs> for that to sink in. So the lesson, the lesson here is, again, we're all very unique people. We have very special qualities and very special things that only each of us can do in the world. But we also need to self-correct and be aware of when some of those qualities actually can work against us. And for me, it is getting very emotionally or passionately involved in or in a reaction to or in a response to something. And it can cause me to lose perspective, to not think things through clearly, um, and then to act in a way that actually makes things worse and not better. So I have failed many times, but hopefully I'm getting better at it in managing my, <laughs> my passionate response to things, usually when there is an injustice or something I think is unfair. I have been on a journey to learn how to manage those things in a way that both gets me the result I want and also doesn't make things worse. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Jessica. 
Anytime. I'm happy to come back. <laughs> I'm going to take you up on it. This was amazing. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to today's show. It is wonderful that you've made it all the way to the end. I am going to link Dean Modest. Her name is Petal Modest, but I can only really think of her as Dean Modest because that's what she was to me when I was in law school. But anyway, I will link her podcast, Parenting for the Future, in the show notes. And with that, I wanted to thank you for tuning in. Another week, another episode. I hope all is well with you. In the show notes, you will see a link that you can click on to anonymously submit a listener question to the show. I've been getting them via Instagram, via DM, but if you want to be totally anonymous, you can do that too. If you click the link, it'll just pull up a Google form. Simple, quick, easy. Pop your question in there. I love hearing from you. I love being able to help you. And with that, I will catch you next week and have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.